Um, if you want to open your, your Bibles there, uh, we are going to be on page, uh, starting on page 1203. We're in Hebrews chapter 4, um, and we're going to be reading, originally we were going to be reading until 6 verse 3, but we're going, to, we're going to cut that off a little bit, and we're going to read from 414 to 510. So that starts on page 1203, and it's Hebrews 4, starting at verse 14, and reading to chapter 5 verse 10. This is God's word. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Folks, if you have that uh, passage open before you there, um, Hebrews 5, Hebrews is the kind of book that I think we need to have open. Uh, I wouldn't recommend trying to follow what I'm talking about here without having the text open before you. Um, We're not a huge crowd, are we? By Kirkpatrick standards. Um, If you're here on a Sunday morning, it's hard to get a seat. Um, Maybe that's one way we should be selling the evening service. It's easier to get a seat um, here, here in the evening. Some people like the, the evening service because it's a little bit quieter. I wonder how you think, actually, about coming and being part of something that's a little bit smaller. I, I don't know. I remember, as, maybe as a younger minister, maybe paying more attention to the size of a crowd that there were at things. If it was a big crowd, that was great. And if it was a small crowd, that was not so great. Somewhere along the lines, I just had a sense of the Lord saying, don't worry about it. Sure, two people having a conversation in a coffee shop can be full of the Spirit. Um, Could be a thousand people in the room and nobody's connecting with the Lord. So I share that with you just in case you are here tonight or have been on other Sunday evenings and you think, hmm, 
wish it was a bit, you know, wish it was a bit bigger, wish there were more people here. We've enjoyed worshiping God, and we're going to open his word together. So let's, let's do that. Hebrews chapter 5, for the most part, we'll pick up a few verses at the end of chapter 4. It's a beautiful thing to be understood. To have someone in your life who really gets you. I love it um, if I'm talking maybe to a colleague, maybe an older minister. Uh, they listen to what I'm saying or, or they say something. And somewhere in the conversation, I just get that sense that they, they really understand me. That they get me. And it's one of life's great gifts to have a person like that in our lives, whether it's a, a dear friend, uh, somebody who's maybe come through enough of life with you to know a bit about your backstory, to know what makes you tick, and, and they understand you. Maybe, maybe it's a, a spouse, someone who really gets you, feels the pressures with you, knows how the failures are, are hurting you. Someone who, who might just have a sense of what it's like to walk in your shoes and to, to walk alongside you with whatever struggles you're experiencing. Folks, I don't know whether you know it or whether even knowing it, you believe it in your heart of hearts. We have a God just like that. Just like what I've described. This person who gets us, who knows us, who understands our deepest struggles. We're going to see a bit of that here this evening in Hebrews chapter 5. So where have we got to in this letter written to these early Jewish Christians? So far we've learned that they're, they're facing persecution. A lot of them are wondering whether they should jack in the whole following Jesus thing and go back to a Judaism without Jesus, the thing that they'd grown up in. And the writer says, no, absolutely not. That's just not an option. Jesus is better. He's better than the angels who gave the law to Moses. That was some of the early chapters we were looking at that. He's greater than Moses through whom God gave the law finally to the people. Moses who brought them through the desert to the boundaries of the promised land. A couple of weeks ago we noticed just in passing that he's greater than Joshua, the guy who, who finally brought them into the promised land, a place where they had some rest after their journey and for a short time rest from their enemies. Jesus is greater than all of these guys, all these great figures in the, the history of, of God's people. You cannot go back to a Judaism without Jesus. There is no plan B. And a couple of weeks ago in chapter 4, we, we noticed this interesting theme about rest. The whole of chapter 4 seemed to be about entering into God's rest. And the writer's worried that people are going to miss out on God's rest. Their forefathers had missed out on entering God's rest. A whole generation of them didn't make it into the rest that there was in the promised land. And why was that? Because they'd hardened their hearts and hadn't listened to God's word. They hadn't trusted God. And we saw last week, or, or last time, a couple of weeks ago, that Jesus has invited us into a far greater rest than that. It's not, not crossing a political boundary. It's not the end of a, a journey. It, it's the, the, 
the rest that the whole of the created order is going to have when God restores his shalom, his final full and perfect peace to all things. The writer doesn't want us to miss out on the rest that God is preparing for us in Jesus Christ. And there was a a background theme, really, in chapter 4. It wasn't very much to the fore, but we did start to notice it. And that was about the Day of Atonement. We noticed that whenever the writer is writing here about the, uh, this, the Sabbath rest of the people of God, he was writing about it in a way that made us think of the Day of Atonement. He hints at this idea of atonement in chapter 4, verse 2. We have also had the gospel preached to us. What's he talking about here if not the great atoning work of Jesus on the cross? And by the time he gets to the end of chapter 4, he's turning his attention from the the good news of the atonement and the moment of the atonement to the the key player of the atonement uh, on the day of atonement, the high priest. So, broadly he's saying something like this. Under the old covenant, the high priest does the work on the day of atonement, so the people of God rest. They take a rest and mark and, and celebrate in a, in a reverent way the, the work that's been done on their behalf on the Day of Atonement. And he says now, under the new covenant, Jesus has been to the cross. He's told us about his work. He says his work is finished. It is finished. And he's entered his rest. And because he has, so can we. So with that in in the background, as we move into chapter 5, the author just wants to make very explicit a connection between the person of the high priest in Judaism and Jesus Christ. What do you know about the high priest? I'm I'm just looking to see who's in tonight. I think you guys know something about the high priest. Is there anybody here wants to make the Jewish high priest their specialist subject on mastermind? Does anybody know all that there is to know? about? No? Shall I take a moment? Very quickly? Okay. So we've talked about the, the Day of Atonement. This is the chief player in the people of God. And the Day of Atonement is one big day in the year. We talked about this in last time. We're going to quickly come back to it. It's all described for us in Leviticus 16. The high priest stands before all the people. We need to understand this for a second. He stands before them as their representative. Okay? He's bone of their bone. He's flesh of their flesh. He's one of them. But he's going to stand between the people and God. And he's going to be like a mediator And before he can do that, before he can go into God's presence, he's going to have to clean himself. So he'll he'll wash. He'll get himself ritually pure. And he's doing that again on behalf of the people. When he washes himself, the people are being washed, ready to go and meet with God. And then he puts on special clothes. And we talked about this briefly the last time. He puts on robes and stuff, but the thing we'll focus on is he puts on what they call the breastplate, big brass plaque over his chest, has 12 gemstones in it, one representing each of the tribes of Israel. 
And the idea is that he, the 12 represents all the people. So he's going to go and meet God with the names of every single person in Israel on his heart. And that's exactly how it's described when the law is given in Exodus 28. Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece. Okay? So one man's going to go and meet God, but he's doing it for all the people. And then he's going to take an animal, he's going to lay his hands on it. First thing he's going to do is confess his own sins, because this man's not perfect. He needs to say, I'm a sinner, put my sins on this animal. And then he's going to confess the sins of the people. And he's going to offer a sacrifice as a symbol of the just judgment of God on the sins of the people. And then the high priest's going to take the blood and he's going to go behind the veil into the most holy place. And that represents the presence of God on earth. And there, he's going to intercede going to talk to God on behalf of the people, praying that God will have mercy on them and forgive them. So that's, that's the backdrop. That's what the writer's referring to in these early verses of chapter 5 when he talks about the high priest. He does a couple of things. I'll mention them quickly in passing. He tells us a couple of things about the high priest beyond what any Jew would have known. Look, look first of all at verse 2. He tells us that this high priest identifies with us. He gets us. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. He's like us, so he gets us. Okay? The high priest had to come from among the people. He had to be one of them. He had to represent them. And the second point that the writer stresses in these opening verses is that the high priest is called. Okay? Can't, can't appoint himself. There's certainly a recognition that human, there's a human process for the appointment, verse 1. But verse 4 tells us that finally nobody gets to be called except by God. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God. So there we are. That's what a high priest is. And this passage this evening is going to be all about saying, yep, there's such a thing as a high priest, but Jesus Christ is the greater. He is the true high priest. The, the author starts to talk about Jesus as our true high priest in verse 5. So let's go back to what we said about the high priest a second ago and see if we can really say all those things about Jesus. He's flesh of our flesh. Yeah. Well, that's what we're talking about at Christmas time, isn't it? Came into the world, born into a home like ours. He's in solidarity with us. He's a mediator who stands between us and God. He consecrated himself. He didn't go and wash himself. He, Jesus consecrated himself for his high priestly work, for, for the sacrifice that he made by living a perfect life. He clothed himself for the occasion. He didn't wear the fine robes and the gemstones. He just, just put on human flesh. He said, I, I'll identify with these people. I'll, I'll be one of them. Does he bear our names in his heart? 
I think so. Doesn't need a brass plate or stones. Observe the life that Jesus lived. See if you can find even one person that he failed to notice and dignify and to love. The names of all his people were on his heart. Did Jesus ever offer a sacrifice? Yeah. But it wasn't any animal he brought along. He offered a lamb, didn't he? John the Baptist made the connection for us. Look, the Lamb of God. And he pointed at Jesus. Not a lamb that Jesus was leading any, to any temple or any place. He himself is the Lamb. So Jesus does this thing where he both is the sacrifice and he's the priest offering the sacrifice. He really is the true high priest. The high priest went to the temple every year because that offering of the, the sacrifice that he did, it had to be renewed. It, it didn't have efficacy forever. But Jesus' sacrifice happens once, happened once, never happens again. What he did when he died that certain Friday afternoon, that true day of atonement, true high priest, true day of atonement, that's never, ever going to be repeated again. He makes a way for us to come to God. Folks, this, this work of Jesus, this high priestly work of Jesus, it's wonderful. I, we've grown up with it, a lot of us. I guess it's possible that we take it for granted, this love God has towards us. God satisfies his own wrath by giving himself for us. God the Father, though it breaks his heart, you maybe need to be a parent to have any sense of this, to give your child. I don't know how you do that. That's what God the Father does. The Son, Jesus, he says, I'll go. I'll give my life for them. To give your life for somebody else? For people who are nailing you to a cross? Steve Chalk famously got this wrong a few years ago, didn't he? Or the people he was writing about maybe get it wrong. Cosmic child abuse, he called it as though God the Father somehow did something cruel to Jesus. And that's where the Christian message of the gospel and the atonement is born. No. The gospel is way more beautiful than that. It's the persons of the Godhead agreeing that they will all pay the largest price imaginable. The father says, yes, I'll give my son. And the son says, yes, I'll go. It's a beautiful thing, this high priestly work of Jesus. Jesus died. He was the sacrifice. He made the sacrifice and he was the sacrifice. But his father raised him from the dead and took him to his right hand. And what does he do there? This is where I want us to land this evening. We have to, we've had to think about this high priestly work, but I want us to, to think about why it matters. 
what good it does me today in 2018 and you. Jesus sits beside the right hand of his Father, interceding for us. That's what the writer to the Hebrews tells us. Chapter 9, verse 24. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in the Father's presence. So this is the important bit. I think if we just said that he was the high priest, I think there's something that would happen there that would give us a lot of um, confidence for our sort of eternal future. We'd have a sense, yes, my, you know, when I die, whatever happens after that, safe in Jesus' hands. But I don't think we'd have much for today. I want to talk for the remainder of our time about today. What difference does the high priestly work of Jesus make for you and for me today? Well, here's the thing. He's our sympathetic. He's not just a high priest. He's our sympathetic high priest. The writer of the Hebrews makes a point in the early verses of the chapter saying that a high priest has to understand his people. He has to, if he's going to represent them, he's going to have to understand them, what their frailties are, their weaknesses are. And then he goes on to say, Jesus does just that for us. Say you decide, right? Um, and people do decide this. Why? I'm not quite sure. Maybe somebody in the room has. And I'm, anybody here? Nobody here has climbed Everest, have they? No, just checking. So many people have nowadays. Say you decide how to climb it, that you want to climb Everest, right? And you, you look for a guide. The first thing you'd be looking for, I think, is somebody who'd been to the top themselves. Is that right? Do you want to let somebody take you up Everest who, who hasn't been up? No, I don't, I don't think so. So you're looking for somebody who knows the way, somebody who's been to the start, they know the terrain, they know the challenges, somebody who has the know-how and the resources to see you through. Well, that's how the writer to the Hebrews presents Jesus. If you go to those final verses of chapter 4, let your eyes rest there for a second. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet without sin. Earlier in chapter 2, the writer said that he'd been made like us in every respect. Jesus was tempted like us in every way. Chapter 5, verse 8, the writer says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Right, folks, I need to come clean here, right? I've heard about this idea that Jesus can sympathize with us when we're tempted. I've heard about this for a good part of my life, okay? It's the kind of upbringing I had, these, these ideas. This idea hasn't come to me this week as I've been studying this passage. I've known about this. And I've always struggled to really understand it. I like how? How can Jesus know the temptations that I feel and how can he understand me? He might want to. You know when a person says to you, oh, I know how you feel. And you go, no, you don't. <laughs> you might want to, but you don't. You're not here. You're not in my shoes. 
I've often felt that way about this bit of Christian doctrine, this idea that Jesus somehow sympathizes with us in our weakness as we face our temptations. How is it possible? Jesus is perfect, always was. So how can he know what it's like for somebody like me to be given the runaround by Satan and just life's struggles and temptations? It's like asking Bill Gates to empathize with a somebody on the dole trying to get through Christmas? How can he understand me? C.S. Lewis has a crack at this question in mere Christianity. And Lewis makes the point that Jesus isn't simply as well qualified as our neighbor to understand what human temptation feels like. He says he's better qualified. Nobody who ever lived understands the, the struggle that a human being has with temptation more than Jesus Christ. And here's how he explains it. He says, no man knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. A silly notion is current that good people don't know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply doesn't know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by giving in to it. We never find the strength of the evil impulse in us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he's the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He's the only realist about temptation and sin. Isn't that interesting? Jesus Christ might just, well, he does just know more than anybody else around us of the struggles that we face when we try to live a godly life and resist temptation for him. We sometimes, well, I, I fessed up a moment ago. I think I've actually broken some new ground this week, so don't give up hope. Your minister is, is able to learn things, okay? I think I, I think I do understand this better after dwelling on it this week. I, I, think, I think I imagined, yeah, of course Jesus got through temptations. He has divine superpowers. That's what helps him. You know, he's different. But then if you reflect on, well, how did Jesus live in face of temptation? What resources did he have to help him get through so, so let's think of the temptation narratives, right? What do we know about the temptation narrative, say, in Matthew's gospel? What we know is this. Before he goes into the desert, the, the thing that happens just before it is that he goes to John, he's baptized, and what happens? The Spirit comes. Do you remember? Spirit comes on him in the form of a dove. So Jesus goes into the desert to face temptation with the Spirit on him. 
What happens when he's in the desert and he's resisting Satan? How is it he does that? What one, if, if we're going to say he has a, a strategy or a method, what is it he does? Satan says stuff to him and he answers back with the Word of God. Three times he's tempted, three times he reaches back into the Old Testament Scriptures and he says, it is written. So Jesus divine superpowers, if I can call them that, that he used in the desert when he's face to face with the tempter are two things, the Word and the Spirit. And what are the resources that primarily we're given if we want to live godly lives and to win through against temptation? What are those resources available to us if not the Word and the Spirit of God. Folks, we can climb the Everest of our own unique lives. We can climb them with Jesus, with Him going before us and guiding us. He is equipping us for that uphill journey, and He is able to sympathize for us in every challenge we face. We're not alone. I love how Rankin Wilburn, the author, puts it. He knows our frame because he assumed it. He knows we're dust because he became it. And now dust sits on the throne of the universe. Our Savior's not an idea. He's a real person, able to sympathize with real people. End quote. I've given us a slightly different language for this this evening. I've said we have a God who gets us. He gets us. Folks, I I said a a few moments ago, I, I want to understand how this matters for today, for the lives that you and I are trying to live. Think, for example, just for a second about how we pray. Is there anybody here finds it hard to pray? I'll not ask for a show of hands. It's all right. You can raise your hand inside. Jesus, our great high priest, our willing advocate. Do you you see what we're saying here? He's at the Father's side. And why is he there? To intercede for us, to represent us. So, that, that can give us a confidence. Whenever I pray, I don't know, I have this sense of somebody's going to take my confused, tired, garbled, badly motivated, or, or no prayers at all. He's going to take those And he's going to bring them to the Father. I'm imagining me arriving before a throne room just as badly prepared as somebody like me would be coming to see royalty. And somebody coming to meet me at the door and saying, listen, let me just sort you out before we bring you in. And then doing that. That's what he does with our prayers. All of our failure, all of our bewilderment, He takes them and he turns them into prayers for the Father. 
even when we struggle to get the words out, isn't that what Paul says in, in Romans 8? Christ intercedes. He translates even groans into words and into language. Let's not give up that we could be people who could talk to God, people who could pray. The writer of the Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I found John Piper's reflection on this very helpful. He says, We're, We are likely to feel unwelcome in the presence of God if we come with struggles. We feel that God's purity and perfection so keenly that everything about us seems unsuitable to his presence. But then we remember that Jesus is sympathetic. We know what sympathy means, don't we? It's Greek. Sim always means with. Pathos means to feel. He feels with us, not against us. He feels with us and not against us. This awareness of Christ's sympathy makes us bold to come. He knows our cry. He's tasted our struggle. And he bids us to come in confidence when we feel our need. Folks, we have a great high priest. He made the sacrifice for us. And he was the sacrifice for us. And he's at the right hand of his father interceding for us tonight. He gets us. He's lived the life that we live. And this is the bit we need to be careful of, I think, at Christmas time in the Advent season. One of the metaphors I love is, is the idea of the incarnation that Peterson gives it in, in John 1, that Christ moved into the neighborhood He did move into the neighborhood. He became flesh and flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone. He became one of us. But I think it's wrong to imagine that he somehow disappeared. By his spirit, he's still in the neighborhood. He's present with us and at the Father's side representing us. He gets us. So don't stay away. Come. Come to Jesus and to his Father. Let's do that just now as we pray.